This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. I had gotten to this point where, um, as a college student who was involved in everything and, and super excited to serve the Lord, I had a close friend whose father took his own life, and that kick-started a, just a season of emotional grief and lament for me. And so I was grieving, uh, let's see, I was doubting, and I needed a break. And so I couldn't feel my way to God, think my way to God, I couldn't serve my way to God, but I longed for God. And so that's when I was invited into a communal liturgical experience. And rather than experiencing it as works righteousness, I experienced it as the easy yoke of Jesus. Liturgy feels like a fun buzzword these days, especially around social media amongst Christians. And yet, what is it in liturgy, in living a sacramental life, that actually propels us not only to live a more full and rooted Christian experience, but also helps us to love the church and one another better? In this conversation, I'm joined by my husband, Bryce Hales, on this interview, and we chat with Aaron Damiani. He is a Anglican pastor in Chicago, and we talk about his most recently released book, Earth Filled with Heaven. Listen in. You're sure to get a few laughs and some really thoughtful analysis on how we move forward in this moment in time. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. All right, we are here for a fun and exciting conversation with Aaron Damiani. He is most recently the author of Earth Filled with Heaven, Finding Life in Liturgy, Sacraments, and Other Ancient Practices of the Church. He is also an ordained Anglican priest, and we're excited to welcome him. So thanks so much, Aaron, for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Ashley. You are welcome. And what is really fun today, too, is I am joined by my husband, my partner and co-conspirator in all things hails and cultural. <laughs> um, in, in he is all things, right? Right. In all things. Yes. We are also parents, <laughs> covenantally wedded spouses. So it's very fun to have Bryce join us. He is the new pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church in San Luis Obispo, California. So It'll be a great conversation. So thanks, Bryce, for joining in behind the microphone. Thanks for letting me come back. It's You're been a welcome. long time since we did this together. I know, I know. All right. So we are talking about Aaron, about your book, about Earth Filled with Heaven. And it, you know, it, it strikes me kind of as a, a primer on, you know, what Alexander Schmemann would talk about, like when he talks about living for the life of the world and that we live sacramentally. 
Can you tell our listeners, what do you mean by a sacramental life and why now, particularly in this moment in time, this is something that's vital to recover? Well, I, my mind and heart was blown by Alexander Schmemann reading for the I life know. of the but I couldn't so understand half of it. It was, <laughs> it was a different world. So yeah. I was hoping maybe they would name this book Alexander Schmemann for Dummies. <laughs> so, you know, to live sacramentally is to live with a vision of the glory of God in such a way that involves your body and involves material life, where you're living with that vital connection to the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, who became flesh and who came to renew the earth, not to condemn the earth. So it's helpful just to think of, you know, a sacrament is really bringing these things together. It's that, as St. Augustine said, it's that outward visible sign of uh, invisible spiritual reality. And so we're, we're living, those sacraments become our way in to living a sacramental life where all of a sudden now we have a way to live. You know, it's that, it's that holy in the uh, ordinary thing where we're living such a way that our bodies are involved in salvation. And yet we're keeping that vital connection to to heaven and to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So that's a, a, a little bit of a, a nutshell of the sacramental life. And why do you do, is there a sense in which it's really important to recover that now? Yeah, I think now it's, it's an interesting moment in the church because it's getting harder to follow Jesus right now. It's the, the conditions, ambient conditions of, of life in, in the West is such that it's it's more difficult to live with that sense that God is near. I mean, I think most of us have doubts for our faith. Most of us also are in some ways beset by questions, ethical questions. Is it even ethical to follow Jesus right now? And um, I think also many of us are finding that the sort of modern evangelical offering is not enough nourishment for the challenges that we're facing. And so we're in that moment of that that tree in Jeremiah or that tree in Psalm 1 where our roots have to go deeper. There's got to be a sense that our roots go into the deep, deeper water uh, source, that life source, um, but um, so that we can bear fruit in the conditions that we're planted in. So right now, I think the sacramental life is important for people like us that that want to follow Jesus, finding it more difficult and needing to do so in a way that is not going to burn us out. So speaking of some of those tendencies, I, I, I loved how you talked about social media as an amphitheater for deconstruction, uh, kind of like the ancient Colosseum and how ancient Christian creeds help counter uh, that that sense of disinformation or deconstruction. I wonder if you could maybe Un, like explain that, unpack that a little bit, but also maybe walk us through a day in your life. So how does a liturgy shape the flow of your day to help form your desires uh, against the uh, kind of deconstructive or violence uh, of our current cultural forms? Well, yeah, I was really struck reading the book Patient Ferment of the Early Church and just the incredible sense that in the Roman Empire, people just loved violence. I mean, they fed off and it, it, it resonated with me because that's what, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you, you roll over and you, you open social media, people love violence again and, or, or cable news or, or road rage. I mean, the, the instinct to, to scapegoat and crucify people is getting stronger and stronger. 
And so I was uh, just undone reading about how the early church really worked very, uh, very hard and liturgically to overcome some of those social differences to help people learn how to forgive. One of the key things they did is uh, teaching them the kiss of peace, which was the you know, our version of it now probably appropriately is just the handshake or the wave in the COVID era, uh, <laughs> flashing the peace sign. Um, but back then it was an actual kiss. And the the kiss of peace was actually appropriated from Greco-Roman culture, where if you kiss somebody, it's like letting yourself be tagged uh, with them on social media. Who do you want to be associated with? That's who you kiss in public. It wasn't just about romance. It wasn't just about love. It was also about social status and hierarchy. Uh, and reconciled relationships. So in the ancient church, they would practice the kiss of peace liturgically in the worship service before coming to the table. And it meant we're, we are reconciled and we are at the same level at the foot of the cross. Now let's go to the table together. Well, when they were trotted out in Northern Africa to uh, be food for the wild beasts and entertainment for the people who loved violence, they, right before they were um, killed, um, they actually gathered together in the center of the audit, uh, of the amphitheater, all of them bleeding. And right before the Roman soldiers came to to finish them off, they actually gave each other the kiss of peace as this sign that we live nonviolently, we live lives of reconciliation, and this is our this is our embodied witness that the cross of Jesus has transformed us out of violence and into peace. And so. You know, as you can imagine, that was a shock, and actually, people became Christians that day, including one of the the jailers. And so, um, I just find that it's stories like this, it's practices like this that we've got to get back to if we're going to to, to flourish in our day a little bit more bold and a little bit more deep. Um, I'll, I'll stop there. I'm happy to talk about my daily routine, but I'll just stop there. Gosh, I mean, I, I I'm tempted to go in like seven different directions right now, but. Okay, let's explore the rabbit trail, and we can cut this out, Ashley, if you tell me I'm off base. But <laughs> help me understand the um, part of the in the moment that we're living in. There, there's this kind of increasing voice that says, uh, like, Christians can't live like that. That's naive in the cultural context that we live in. Being nice to people, being gracious to people, being self-sacrificial is 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 foolish and naive and you're just going to get run over because we live in a in a brutal culture now or in a negative culture whatever whatever the um context or the, the vocabulary that's used there um help help me understand help us understand how the liturgical life of the church actually um inculcates that sense of virtue the virtues of patience of uh, of generosity um, be, because just in listening to what you said, I mean, you, you started talking off, starting talking about the kiss, but it's also like, I needed that information. I needed the story too, I think, um, to kind of connect some of the dots there. Well, and you know, the early church is filled with all kinds of stories like that, as well as the messy stories of failure and reconciliation. I think one thing that liturgy does is it gives us off-the-spot training for on-the-spot challenges. That's one key thing that we see in the early church is that they had their battery of, of exercises, of prayers, of plays, so that they could fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
and not just about fighting, it's about bearing witness in a humble way, uh, actually transforming it from being a fight to being a moment of grace. So, you know, for instance, I think one thing that's really helped me is just the ordinary confession of sin. It's an off the spot moment where when I'm with people, when I'm with my church, when I'm alone, it's this moment in the Anglican liturgy where it says, you know, let us confess our sins unto almighty God. I just sometimes want to get away from that basic thing. But I mean, look, unless we're confessing our sins, acknowledging our blind spots and, and then, and then from there going to our neighbor to seek their forgiveness, you know, we're not going to be able to be worthy of the moments like the Carth- uh, the Christians in Carthage who gave that kiss of peace. I mean, they were training for that moment their whole life and they had grace. There was grace for the moment. There was the grace of God for that moment. And so I think that the, it would be naive for us to just think that it would be like waving a magic wand. You just get saved or you just pray this, you know, incantation. And then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're, you're like Jesus. And it's more humble than that. It's longer than that. There's, there's that off the spot you know, training that um, liturgy provides. Yeah. Um, help us understand too. I think, you know, a lot of listeners, maybe they come from a non-denominational kind of broadly evangelical background. Um, you've kind of trod that own road yourself from where you be where you began and where you are now. Um, but I think the idea of liturgy has almost become kind of this buzzword. It's become a lot more mainstream and people seem to like pick and choose these kind of individual liturgical practices. Um, I'd love to hear in what ways you could help us think about liturgy in forms of forming a community as well. And, you know, maybe both personally, what what liturgical practice, maybe even in the book, has been most life-changing for you, but then also how have you been formed in that community? I'm just thinking of that in relation to, you know, this wider conversation about liturgy as only a kind of a personal spiritual practice. And so we're almost like taking the evangelical individualistic form, you know, or kind of mode of being and just applying it to these ancient practices. Like liturgy takes the expression of posting a beautiful picture of my coffee succulent and, (laughs) you know, prayer book on Instagram. And so now I'm living the liturgical life. (laughs) Oh, wow. Oh, man. Hashtag sacramental life. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) I'm going to just do that ironically. (laughs) Uh, That's a great idea for the, you know, the the post for this episode, Ash, on Instagram. Right. Okay. Okay. We'll see. Oh, my word. So it may be helpful just to back up a little bit and talk about my own introduction to it. You know, for, for me, it actually, it really was very necessary for it to be communal because the individual evangelical experience of learn more, do more was burning me out. I had gotten to this point where um, as a college student who was involved in everything and, and super excited to serve the Lord, I had a close friend whose father took his own life and that kickstarted a, just a season of emotional grief and lament for me. I was doubting my faith. So it's like trying to figure out is the scriptures, are the scriptures true? Is Jesus God? All that didn't know what I believed there. And then I was burning out of my first ministry assignment. And so I was grieving. Uh, let's see, I was doubting and I needed a break. And so I couldn't feel my way to God, think my way to God. I couldn't serve my way to God, but I longed for God. 
And so that's when I was invited into a communal liturgical experience. And rather than experiencing it as works righteousness, I experienced it as the easy yoke of Jesus. It wasn't something that I was, it was not a performative, you know, set of things for me to impress other people for look at this trendy new way for me to be a Christian. But it was more, I was like a weary traveler and the local church, PCA church, um, Covenant Presbyterian in Chicago was kind of like that. It was like what some people call, hopefully this isn't weird, mother church in the sense that like when you're a mom and you see your your child really weary, you, you come on in. Here's a meal. Here's a hug. Here's a bed to sleep in. You need rest. And that's what I needed. So for me, what that did was that allowed me to begin to enter into a liturgical life that was already going. And that shaped me and formed me. And, and it went from there. Yeah. What particular practice maybe has been life changing for you, whether that's something initially that struck you or if it's kind of this layered repetition of, of being a part of the liturgy that you can, you can point back to say, okay, here, here, where, here's where I was doubting and anxious. And yet I've seen either, you know, through the confession of sin or through the passing of the peace, um, or just weekly taking of communion that that has shaped and formed you in a particular way. If you could say from point A to point B and all of the stepping stones along the way. Yeah, it was a bit of a messy process for me. It took a lot of time. There's this phrase that Anglicans have that it's uh, as you pray, so you believe. So for me, when I was coming in, doubting my faith, not knowing what I believed, it was actually really helpful for me to be able to pray the creeds, which were an ancient declaration, kind of a global and ancient declaration of what was true. And even if I didn't believe the creed, I could confess it with other Christians and 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 let that shape me. That was a stabilizing thing for me. Um, the sacraments were really interesting in the sense that I don't know if you've seen those videos of people who couldn't see color, but they put on those corrective glasses for the first time and they just like lose it. And so one formative thing for me was just to to begin to partake in the sacraments more regularly, communion, and then to bear witness to the baptisms that were happening. It was for me like putting on those glasses just moved me so much to see that Jesus Christ had been closer to me than I than I knew at all. And especially when I felt distant from him, he had never left me. There was this objective quality that just stabilized me. And so even though my emotions were all over the place, my thoughts were all over the place, and I was just personally exhausted, the objective, loving quality of the nearness of Jesus Christ, the grace of God in him through the sacraments was uh, was was very healing for me. There's one in, yes, it, I was just going to say in recent times, one of the things that that I've started doing is just embracing beginning my days at night and starting with a really ancient prayer, old prayers. They're always good. I, I just think I have, I'm less hesitant to use them now than I used to be. Old prayers are just rich, you know? And so one of the things that we do that it draws from Jewish practice, but it's made its way now into fixed hour prayer in Christian circles uh, is when the sun goes down, you're celebrating that the God's day has just begun. Like in Genesis one, there was evening, there was morning. And so we get into that rhythm now as a family by lighting a candle and praying the old prayer, O gracious light, celebrating that the light of Christ shines in the darkness. And then 
what that what that marks is that even though our days have ended, God's day is beginning. And when we wake up the next morning, rather than waking up into a productivity trap where we have to get through our to-do list, we're actually waking up into grace. God has already been working all night long. We're joining him. Having a quiet time is not earning his favor. It's it's like stepping into a grace that he already has for us. So for me, that just helps that helps me get out of the the American sort of wiring my days for productivity rather than shaping them to uh, allow me to participate in God's grace. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Aaron, I, w- I want to kind of shift directions a little bit and and talk about deconstruction. In, in your book, you write about the sacraments, liturgy, and the importance of the church. Um, but one of the things that you you say about deconstruction and the church is that you, you talk about how Jesus often deconstructs systems and structures, but he never deconstructs the church, though he might cleanse and reform the church. So how would you speak to people who are in that process right now, the process of deconstruction. One just would be a word of hope that what you're going through is often, it feels terrible, but it's often a grace. It's an invitation to go deeper. And so you're not a bad Christian for having doubts. You're not a bad Christian for seeing things in the church that, that shouldn't belong. You're, you are not cast aside because you're, you're grappling as you are. And I would just say, don't quit there. Um, don't d- uh, don't become so disillusioned that you that you stop the process in the middle. I love Trevin Wax has a phrase, deenculturation, which I think is is what is probably the the better word for deconstruction. Where you see Jesus doing this with his disciples, they have this enculturated view of the Messiah is not going to get crucified. They think that they believe that sincerely. They carry that belief with them for three years, and they're with Jesus, who's talking again and again about about the crucifixion. And you can see like why they reacted so strongly to it. They kept wanting to talk about status. He kept wanting to talk about death and resurrection, death and resurrection. So in the end, I mean, that belief they had had to be deconstructed through the actual cross, the literal cross. And this is life-shattering for them. It disillusions them. You can see it, you know. The road to Emmaus, there's these disillusioned disciples who think the life is over because Jesus didn't fulfill our expectations, our sincere expectations. And yet, if they're willing to let that go, 
they can find that actually a crucified and risen Lord is much more powerful and much more hopeful than a non-crucified Messiah who's only here for the nation of Israel. And I would say that that's true for, for people right now who are deconstructing their faith. There's some things that need to go, no doubt about it, that don't belong. They're not biblical expectations for God, even though we've made them sort of inherent to how we practice Christianity. Those things can go, but let's embrace the historic biblical vision of following Jesus and being his bride because he, like you said, Bryce, he's not going to deconstruct his bride. He will purify her, and uh, but he does that in love. So one of the things I wonder about, and, and I think this you know, kind of relates to my quip about Instagram <laughs> a minute ago, is that there, there can be a sense in which uh, embracing the sort of sacramental, liturgical, um, ecclesiastical experience becomes about like an aesthetic experience. And, and, and I guess that's where, you know, I, I don't want to use the phrase devil's advocate because as a seminary professor once said, like, why would you want to be the devil's advocate? <laughs> but, but like, maybe if, if, part of me just wants to push back ever so slightly and, and say like, okay, but how, how do we, how do we, while, while promoting kind of the, the formative nature of liturgy in, in a moment of disenculturation, how do we help people understand that, that it's not just about kind of jettisoning faith while retaining a liturgical ex- or a aesthetic experience. Yeah. Huge danger, huge danger. That's very insightful because there's plenty of people doing that. I mean, honestly, I think that some of the pull towards the liturgical is quite honestly, a need to differentiate from your parents, from your faith that you inherited. Um, I need to feel special. I need to feel different. I need to feel smart, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, God and his grace doesn't, doesn't push us aside because our, our motives are mixed. My motives are always mixed. There's always good and bad in there. So our motives for coming to liturgical sacramental worship is, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be mixed with flesh and, um, as well as some good motivations. So I would say that stick with it and it'll do its job. Um, and again, going back to there's a difference between what we're doing and why we're doing it. Getting back to the why, Dallas Willow talks about vision, intention, means. The vision is Jesus. The intention is whether or not we want him. The means is something like liturgy, not only liturgy, not only sacraments. We need, we need, we need to serve others. We, we need to silence all the, all the spiritual disciplines. If we keep the vision, Jesus, and we let the Holy Spirit use the liturgy and use the scriptures to purify our motives, to identify, hey, you're after a performative aesthetic because you want people to think you're special. Well, let's bring that to the confession of sin and let's share that with our small group. Let's ask them to pray for that. And then let's let the Holy Spirit open up opportunities to use our gifts and maybe our gifts for social media, who knows, to actually love and serve others. And that's where I think the spiritual life over the course of following Jesus is intended to make us more loving people where even though we keep some of the forms, there's more and more love for God and neighbor flowing through those forms. So I, I really appreciate how 
you you said that. I'm wondering if you could maybe come at the question from a more pastoral, like from your side of the table, though, because I I do sort of think that um I don't want to make too much of this, but there is a little bit of like a, a trend moving in this direction, and so I I, I feel like there can be people who. Uh, you know, we know COVID has disrupted everything. It's disrupted the life of the, the church in so many ways. And so there can be this, this tendency for, for people who are, um, you know, you've, maybe you've distanced from your church. Uh, you're being kind of drawn in this direction. I, I feel like the way that you just described that uh, involves a, a greater degree of self-awareness. Uh, or a great degree of self-awareness. So if you're, if you're, if you're a friend, if you're a pastor and you're sort of seeing somebody you care about drifting in this direction of I'm embracing the, this aesthetic experience, um, how might but you... But yeah, meanwhile, you've left the actual visible body of the church. Yeah. yeah what do you, what do you do? So just to clarify, this is, this is someone who is, pursuing a liturgical sacramental private life, but they've left aside the actual local church. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I'm tending I'm towards that direction. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's a great question. So the sacramental life is nothing if not lived in the church. That's where the sacraments happen. And so if, if you are, if one, if you see somebody who is pursuing a private liturgical sacramental expression of their faith, maybe it's to impress other people, or maybe it's as a, as a substitute for the local church, you can encourage them that the point of those practices is to help you love the church with greater sacrifice and greater connection. And just like Jesus would not deconstruct his bride, I don't, we should not either. So in the chapter on baptism, I just talk about how, you know, the, the messiness of baptism is in, is in some ways a, a bit of a clue for us that life in the local church is messy and it's humbling. And our sophistication often gets in the way of actually loving the real people in the pews. Because we just think this is this is way too humble. This the, these people are are not at my level, and there's no way that they could be used by God to actually, um, you know, help me help me worship Him. And so, one of the things that the sacramental life should do, and I think can do, is actually help us shed some of the performative skepticism and sophistication in favor of a of a rich. Life, which is that's a boring life, you know. It's a it's a lonely life. It's a very lonely life if you have to hold on to your sophistication. If we're willing to let that go and embrace the real bride of Christ, I think we're going to find that yeah, it's messy and there's we're we're involved in community and there's there's diapers and there's potlucks and there's awkward conversations and there's different generations that don't always get one another and different cultures that don't always get one another. But if we're if we're willing to be as devoted to the church as Jesus was, we'll find that the local church can be as dear to us as she was to to our to our Lord. Not because she makes him look good, not because she makes us look good, but because we're living members of this body, and we have something to give, we have something to receive, 
And the road of deconstruction is a lonely road um, if it does not end in uh, embracing the bride of Christ. I, I really appreciate how you how you said that, and I I think um, kind of just that emphasis that uh, that doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. <laughs> We're not going to clear up all the difficulties, and that's that's so much of what happens in the life of a local congregation. And I just think that's so incredibly important. Um, so, Aaron, are you hopeful that recovering some of the kind of ancient practices and liturgical life of the church will help younger generations as they're coming up um, now in in Christian churches? Yeah, absolutely, I do. I I pray for the next generation. I have four kids myself, and obviously kids in our church, and I do pray that the ones that are growing up in liturgical churches will in time be able to savor and appreciate the gift that this is, the inheritance that this is. And for those who didn't, I'm praying that like the the next generation that does not have liturgical practices right now, as they learn to embrace them, they would their vision of Christ and his church would be renewed after so much disillusionment, after so much that has that has eaten away at their faith and confidence that this would that this would root them. And it's it's very inspiring to see. We, we have a lot of Christian college students at, at Emmanuel Anglican that come, and it's it's really beautiful to see their, uh, uh, their joy and their enthusiasm, not just for these new forms, but they love to worship. You know, they love to worship Jesus Christ. And when we're celebrating Easter Sunday and we bring out all the bells and whistles and the liturgical colors and the and the uh, you know sprinkling people with water and it's just a fun time to see the joy in their faces going boy I, I didn't know that Easter Sunday could be so joyful and I didn't know that fasting could be so freeing and I didn't know that walking the liturgical calendar could be so deep and so um, man my heart is for the next generation to to take these treasures and and really really own them and and by doing so treasure Jesus Christ. And I think their, their challenge is going to be greater as well. Like there's going to be less ambient cultural support for following Jesus. So I pray this roots them and strengthens them for that. Do you find um, in your role as pastor, like what does it look like to provide kind of that safe place for that disenculturation um, without deconstructing the church and also thinking, what does it look like you know, to be helping either folks who have come out of that or kind of this next generation grown resilience. You know, you're, you're, we're talking about, you know, that there's less of a cultural um, form, right. That says being Christian is, is okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, one of my friends recently mentioned uh, that he's like, this generation has more language for trauma than any other generation. And yet is lacking some of the perseverance necessary to work through trauma or to work through hurt even in normal relationships and especially the ones that are going to come with commitment like in the local church. So my hope is that, and one of the things that we want, we really do want to provide for people at Emmanuel is is just that there's this thing, Benedictine hospitality is this beautiful way. It's like treating Benedictines treat every guest who comes to, to live with them as if they were Jesus himself. 
And so they're not doing anything. They're rolling out the red carpet and they're, they're doing so because this is their way of loving Christ. And so we take a page from their playbook and we say, wherever someone's at, whether they're deconstructing or, or not a Christian, let's treat our guests, let's treat our let's treat people who come to worship as as if they were Christ himself and make space for them just to just to be, just to be silent in the presence of God, to maybe sometimes they're just not going to take communion for a while because they're not ready to. We have actually, on a practical level, we have a prayer ministry that happens during the service. Um, a lot of churches do this, but we we um, make space for people to bring their their doubts and and, and frustrations, fears, um, and then in time, we do find that uh, many many people who are on this path are ready to to go deeper and to to actually uh, you know become part of the welcoming committee, become a Benedictine as it were themselves, and to welcome others in who are weary. That's great. Yeah. Um... As we conclude our conversation, I always love to ask everybody their laundry routines. And this is such a fitting question for you because uh, really the impetus for the question comes from Kathleen Norris's book, The Quotidian Mysteries, which she comes back to faith when she sees the Catholic priest doing the dishes, right? During the mass, he's, he's cleaning out the chalice. Um, and so it's just a good reminder that all of our normal routines actually are sacramental, right, as well. So what does your laundry routine look like, Aaron? So we've got six people in the house. We've got three of them are in adolescence. So what we've done is we've decided to divide up. Everyone does their own laundry. And so I do my own laundry. And I found that it was really helpful for me to keep a separate laundry basket so that I didn't have to go through the huge mound every time. So I have my own baskets in my room. And what I do is um, throw it in the washer with some soap. And then I have a number of like dry fit clothes because I love to bike and love, you know, work out and everything. And so I've got an, we've got a rack right next to our dryer. So I hang up maybe about 30% of my laundry on the just rack. Right away. Love it. <laughs> just right away. Cause they don't have to be dried. In fact, you wear them out faster if they, if you put them in the dryer, the rest I put in the dryer and then I usually leave for work for the day. And then come back and put them back in the in the laundry basket. And then when I'm folding, this is a weird routine, but when I'm folding, I fold, like to fold laundry kind of in my room and play the news in the background. So I'll play like a PBS NewsHour or something like that or P, you know NPR, some, some kind of just in the background noise or a podcast and uh, enjoy it while I fold the laundry. Makes it go faster. There you go. Bryce does our laundry and he watches. Do you watch YouTube mainly? I usually, whatever like, show? Yeah, usually watch how to build something cool on YouTube. While I <laughs> fold the laundry. But I only fold the laundry, I would say, like one out of every three times I do the laundry. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an optional step, quite frankly. <laughs> it smells good. Yeah. My children yeah. definitely view it as completely optional that they opt out <laughs> mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. For sure. For sure. We have to, we have to put it on the chore list folding included there you go awesome well thank you Aaron. it's been such a pleasure appreciate your book and your good witness and work in the world uh, thanks brace too for joining me it's been fun guys thanks so much for having me it's been really great yeah thanks it's fun
Thanks for joining me today on the Finding Holy podcast. If you have not yet subscribed, would you just take a minute to hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts? And if you could just leave a rating and review, it's a great way to keep these conversations going. Thanks again for Bryce Hales joining us and Aaron Damiani. You can grab a copy of his book, Earth Filled with Heaven, at the link in the show notes. As we move forward into our week, I want to leave you with one small step, a way to make this conversation practical in your everyday holy life. And this week, I would love for you to simply practice praying a creed. I have some links in the show notes about the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And if you even want to gather a group of friends together, because liturgy isn't just an individual aesthetic experience, but rather than Instagramming it, simply pray and say a creed together this week. I hope that helps infuse your faith. And as we practice these liturgical forms, they shape us in the aggregate. So keep on going. Remember friends, big things matter, but so does your laundry.